comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun. I say it's all right. It's all right. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun. I say. Welcome to Voices from the Front Lines. I'm in studio with Barbara Lot Holland, our Associate Director of the Strategy Center, and this is Channing Martinez, co-host and producer of Voices from the Front Lines. Uh, this is going to be, I'm very excited, this is my third show that I'm hosting on my own, and so I'm very grateful to be trained by the Strategy Center and Mark Maxwell and others at KPFK. And today, we're going to be talking about film. We're actually going to be talking about the Pan-African Film Festival. And that festival is actually coming up this February in light of Black History Month. It is February 8th to the 18th. Um, and it will be hosted at the Baldwin Hills Cinemark. Um, it's a Pan-African Film Festival and art festival. And so almost the entire theater will be filled with Pan-African films, films from the African diaspora, and then the entire mall will also be filled with art and visual art from the African diaspora. Um, so later we'll be joined by Ayuko Babu, director of the Pan-African Film Festival, but we'll start with the conversation with just you and me, Barbara, right? Uh, to this year, you know, we're so proud that the Strategy Center is actually turning 30. It's our 30th year anniversary. And as part of that 30-year anniversary, we're doing a whole string of events that are commemorating a lot of the 30 years of movement building. And so one of those events is that Bus Writers Union, the film about our Billions for Buses campaign, has actually been accepted by the Pan-African Film Festival as an official selection. Yay! <laughs> right. <laughs> Yay! And it's the 20th anniversary of this film. Um, Barbara, why don't you start by telling us about the Bus Riders Union film? Just a little summary. Hello, everybody. Hope everyone out there in Radio Land is doing good on your side of the world. The Bus Riders Union film is an exciting piece of history. I am... Uh, as I look back on my 20 years with the Bus Writers Union, 
and realizing the effect that it actually had on me and looking at the the legacy that it leaves behind us and actually saying, I know that person, I was there, I remember when that happened. And the transformation that not only the the film, but also being a part of that campaign and how it has actually changed my life. I will start by saying when I actually joined the Bus Riders Union, I came to be a, uh, I looked upon myself as a foot soldier one of the uh, components that Eric Mann speaks about in his uh, seven components of an organizer. And I thought that that's, in my mind, that's what I wanted to be and would always be. And to think (laughs) many moons later, being associate director at the Labor Community Strategy Center, what an honor it is, what an honor that it has been to be a part of this uh, movement building organization. That's great. That's that's really great. I've been a member of the Strategy Center for about 11 years now as well. Um, I was not in the film, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I've seen the film, you know, more than a dozen times. And for me, it is one of the models of the film. Um, So just to give you a synopsis, in 1992, is that right? 1992, we sued them, right? Or 1994, excuse me. In 1994, the Bus Riders Union actually sued the Los Angeles County Metro um, in conjunction with the L- um, the Legal Defense Fund, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and others. And we brought a class action lawsuit um, saying that the Metro was building a separate and unequal system. And, you know, it was very huge because we ended up winning $2.5 billion in improvements to the bus system. And we fought back what was, you know, the the outright racism of the metro. Um, and so Haskell Wexler, a great filmmaker, Academy Award winning filmmaker, actually followed the bus riders union around for about two years to make this documentary. Um, And one thing I was telling Barbara earlier is that one of the interesting things that I see in the film is that Haskell will just go up to almost any one of the members and they'll say something just so profound, so revolutionary, right? Um, One of the greatest lines in the film is by our former member, uh, Della Marie Bonner, uh, may she rest in peace, Um, And they're coming, the group of people are coming out of the court, the federal court, and they've just won the actual consent decree. And she says, hey, everybody, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is just a down payment. We all have to work to even to get even more of what we want. And we all have to organize and we all have to do that starting today. And. uh, you know, it is. It's one of the models. I think that film has the the capacity to organize folks. Um, they have the capacity to organize you to a movement, a movement for social justice, right? A movement against genocide, a movement um, in, in for working class people. But they also have the power to actually organize you into loving the United States, to loving fascism in many ways. Um, and I believe I've said it. M- many times that, 
No, today what we're trying to do at the Strategy Center is we're trying to figure out how do you use the art of film basically to organize in many ways. Um, go for yeah. it. Yeah, um, one of the things that really struck me as I watched the film again, the opening um, phrase or song in the film is "I don't have a car and I live in L.A." <laughs> and to to think now, what twenty years later. We're saying no cars in L.A. as we are moving forward and pushing for environmental justice, not just here in L.A., but around the globe. But that's it, it just struck me as I, I listened to that. And back then, back then, wow, that sounds really old. But at that t the time of the consent decree, we were fighting for uh, CNG buses, clean natural gas buses, but as uh, things evolve, we understand now that cl uh, clean natural gas buses is no such thing really as clean natural gas, but that um, we are moving forward and understanding that zero emission buses is now what we are demanding on our No Cars in L.A. campaign, and we're asking MTA to, to start and uh, replenish the fleet with 5,000 zero emission buses now that the CNG buses are should should now be put out to pasture so this is one of the connecting the dots and moving what happened in the past with um what's happening now in the future with regard to public transportation that's great um and you know one of the important things of this film and the Pan African Film Festival um which we hope to get to is that you know in many ways the Pan-African Film Festival is a counter-hegemonic you know, strategy, counter-hegemonic tactic in the realm of filmmaking. And one of the interesting things is that when I first met Babu, um, we met about two years ago, maybe a little bit more than that, and we were speaking about how the Strategy Center can work closer with the Pan-African Film Festival. And one of the books he referred to me was actually a book on, you know, the art, not just the art of filmmaking, but who gets to control the narrative. And one of the things that, one of the interesting things that he was saying is that, you know, one of the battles that he is uh, fighting is, you know, black people don't have any control of the actual narrative today. They don't have any ideology. We're not we're not winning the ideological battle um, as of now. And one of the things that the Pan African Film Festival um, is trying to do is to win that ideological battle. And so, in many ways, the Bus Writers Union fits right into the Pan African Film Festival's vision of, you know, here's a social movement. And one of the things before I even get to that is that, you know, there's a phrase that is always used by just about anyone, that the victor always gets to tell the story. Mm -hmm. um, and one interesting thing is that in many ways, the Bus Writers Union film is the victor trying to tell the story, um, both of the actual victory of the Bus Writers Union, because the Bus Writers Union did win, right? I mean, they were able to move the entire city. They were able to move LAUSD. They were able to move the county board of supervisors. They were able to move the actual... Los Angeles Metro, um, which even back then, their budget was already $2.5 billion. Um, and, you know, and, and while I like that, 
and I, I really enjoy the film. One of the things I am still reflecting on is that when some of the folks in the film are talking about, you know, there's a whole scene in the film when they are talking about that, you know, they're at the press conference and they're about to uh, announce that the consent decree has been signed. But actually, Eric Mann, the director of the Strategy Center, comes up and says that we have real concerns about this actual agreement, that Metro is trying to get passengers to prove their actual um, – what, what do they call it, their their income, a proof of income, proof of poverty in order to actually get a low-income pass and that the federal government might actually require them to actually have low-income passes. What, what are some of your thoughts on that, Barbara? Well, it, once again, it was reflecting how the major powers to be try and pit us against each other. First, the, the idea that public transportation is only for the poor, where in European countries it's the way to go as well as Chicago and New York. It's, it, it has been the main mode of transportation for the masses. And this low-income pass where you have to prove that, you know, you, you are – you you can't afford to ride the bus when it's it's obvious if they are continuously raising the fares that the poor and people on fixed incomes will not be able to to pay bus fare, but uh, also this has again this has been a tactic that they have used pit, pitting. Uh, mothers on the bus with children, pitting people that's riding the bus and, and putting their groceries in the seat. And then we're flipping that script and saying, wait a minute, that's really not the issue here. The issue here is that we don't have adequate public transportation in low-income neighborhoods, that people are waiting more than 20 minutes or 15 minutes for a bus. That's the issue. So again, us, which is one of the things that I've learned even being in the Bus Rights Union, is flipping that narrative. As Channing was saying, what is the narrative? And the narrative is, is that we live in a trans, we have a transit racist policy when it comes toward public transportation. So, so that's great. Um, sorry, I had to step out. <laughs> um, so we're going to try to have Ayuko Babu on air next week. Um, but let's stay with this. We, we're talking about, uh, this is Channing Martinez, the producer and co-host of Voices from the Frontlines. You're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. Um, and we're talking about the film Bus Riders Union on its 20th anniversary. Um, we will be going to the phones later on today at 3:45. You can queue uh, yourself. You can start queuing yourself up around 3:45. Um, just call 818-985-5735. So there's a lot of great points inside of Bus Riders Union, um, <laughs> and. There's a lot of interesting things. So let, let me just get to the point. One of the interesting things that I like about Bus Riders Union is that while it's very, very, very serious and it's about a very, very serious movement, it's also there's also a lot of comedic points inside of it. 
So, like, there's the lady that says, they never look out for the little man. You think they look out for the little man? No, they're giving all the resources to the big man. And that's why we ain't got today. <laughs> um, I think that's so comedic. And then it jumps to the next shot after that of basically showing the Metro opening up their $2.8 uh, billion red line train and purple line train, um, where the bus riders union is basically being told that, you know, the train that is publicly funded by the city, by the county is actually private property and that the bus riders union organizers are not even allowed to even go into the actual opening reception. Um, so I, I feel like I see a lot of, you know, just very funny points in it. Um, and then the next thing, and then I'll jump it, I'll give it back to you, Barbara, is that one of the other great things about this film, which is different than what films do today, is that it really focuses its characters on working class mm -hmm. people that are actually doing the work. So, you know, you have people like Della Bonner, you have people like Rosalio Mendiola, you have people like um, Kikanza Ramsey, um, Ray, I don't know if her last name was Ray at that point, um, and others. And, you know, it, it, it forefronts their point of view. Um, I think there's even a line inside of the film that says that, you know, I, I think Eric is saying this line is, you know, you're talking to middle class people and they say that it's great what you're doing. What you're doing is great. And then you tell them, yeah, we're building a movement uh, against racism with working class people. And they say, no, we don't want to talk about that. No, we don't want to talk about that. And then you ask the question, why don't people want to build a movement of working class people in this city? They don't care about them. They don't care about racism in many ways. Yeah. Well, you know, I I had another thought on that. As when I my um, first introduction to the uh, bus riders union, and at that point I was not, uh, for lack of a better word, politically inclined or didn't really have any major politics in in my framework. But one of the things that I remembered, I think possibly at my second BRU meeting, and this is what the uh, media does to us and. Uh, it became very clear to me as I entered the, the bus riders union. They always would say, and I remember this movie where it was saying, you can't fight City Hall. And that was part of the mentality that I actually came into the bus riders union, uh, a.k.a. BRU, thinking that you're talking about people riding the bus and we're going to challenge the MTA if we're not going to get anywhere. And... Lo and behold, I, I I I just remember the 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 masses of people that actually came out to uh, MTA board meetings. Which, of course, one of the things, and as I'm looking back, and you're thinking about how you win a campaign and how do actual people on the ground, grassroots, move this mountain? You you definitely need an organization behind you. And you need uh, strong leaders and repetition and study and tactics that make a thing happen. And I remember so many times we were at every MTA board meeting, but not just the day of, 
we had a planning committee meeting on Wednesday talking about what actually we're going to do and then a meeting after that to even fine-tune what we're doing. But you need organization, you need leadership, and time, place, and condition definitely contribute to the winning factors. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I think that's one of the really big highlights of the film is that it really does highlight the time, place, and conditions. And so, you know, from the beginning of the film to the end of the film, you sort of go on this journey, um, you know, and it's a mixed journey. It's not like a straightforward Disney film, you know, oh, it starts off sort of slow and there's a comp- there's a, you know, there's yeah, a middle Disney. part. Uh, I'm forgetting all the terms. And then there's a happy ending. You know, in many ways, it's like if you had to smash together 15, fil- 15 Disney films in one. Because, uh, you know, it Disney shows- is not in this at all. Just, just take <laughs> Disney off the table. You might want to throw in Spike Lee, maybe. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Thank you for that pushback. <laughs> um, but what's, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, in many parts of the film, they're struggling and then they win. And then the Metro does something because, you know, the Metro, the system can never accept a victory on the part of working class people of color um, and black and Latino folks. They can never accept, you know, a victory against oppression. And so Metro does something. And then they're going to fight again. And then they win again. And then Metro takes it back to another court. Um, And over and over, and there's this fight that's going on in the film where, you know, the Buster Artist Union actually ends up winning in the end, of course. Um, But, you know, one of the fights that I even remember is that, you know, you guys have won the buses, right? You've won the entire consent decree. And even, you know, in... You know, near the maybe the last third of the film, right, is that you guys are back at Metro again now that you've actually won the consent decree. Always. They, they haven't even bought the first 152, 182 buses. And so I remember just seeing in the film, which, you know, reminds me of a lot of the actions we did around 1033, is that, you know, Week, month after month, we're still going back to the board, even forcing them to implement the victories that we won. Well, I, you know, that was one of the, the lessons learned, that the victory in in the courts is not a complete victory. If you're not maintaining and then pushing it, if you allow the, the, the enemy just to win in court and not in the streets— then it you will not you will have an incomplete victory. It took us a while. It, it was a continuous push to get MTA to actually buy the first buses. I mean, they didn't just we didn't just have this consent decree and everything was honky dory. You know, they uh, MTA fought us tooth and nail. And we fought back tooth and nails continuously on them, continuously uh, pushing the victory into to a real material win. The court is one win, but the material win is another, and that is the hardest one. And 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 maintaining it is even harder. 
So that's uh, that's one of the things that I did appreciate about the film, and I hope that when people see it, they will understand it. It uh, there was no instant gratification. Everything, even even if we won, we went back to the office going back over what just happened, what we could have done better, or what we saw that we need to take notes of and watch out for. So it's, um, it's so, a continuous uh, victory. So speaking about uh, wins and losses, why don't we you know, just talk? I don't know that everyone knows everything that the bus ride is and you actually won. <laughs> so why don't we go through a list? I know that in total we won $2.5 billion in improvements. Um, I know that before the bus drivers union, you know, the Metro was, you know, they were driving around in terrible diesel buses. And if you've ever studied diesel, it is one of the worst fuel, fuel, fuels, excuse me, in the entire world, one of the most polluting fuels in the entire world. And so the bus riders in Union fought and won a CNG, clean natural gas uh, buses, which at that time was, you know, that was the cleanest fuel around that we knew of. Um, and there's a whole other story Eric talks about, which he'll tell you about probably next week where, you know, even we even received some challenges on that, that CNG is even bad, right? But at that time, that was the cleanest fuel, right? Right. And even the fact that when we got into this fight of uh, transit uh, racism, that uh, MTA was getting ready to actually uh, stop with the buses and go strictly to rail, that they were uh, ready to privatize the bus system, which... And you'll say, okay, so what's what's wrong with that? Well, it's a private company. It has no government uh, oversight, which was one of the things that uh, that we use, and which was which was one of the teeth of it was Title VI of the um, Civil Rights Act that said that no gov no agency receiving federal funds could could have a, a a racist policy and this is what we proved with MTA is that they were putting more money into the rail than they were into the buses they had money to build but no funds to operate so every time a, a rail line opened then doors on certain buses were closed because they needed to feed to feed the rails yeah and so that i think that's where I got the argument in the film that, you know, building a separate and unequal system. Um, and, you know, what's interesting in the film now now that you're mentioning that and now that I say that is that, you know, it's become even harder nowadays to actually sue an agency um, based on what we sued at back then um, was the concept of um, disparate impact. Thank you. Disparate impact. Um, and that, for folks who don't know, I, I'm sure a lot of people do know, but, you know, it took me a long time to understand the concept is that, you know, you can technically, someone can, the attorney general can sue an agency um, for disparate impact. And what that means is that a policy that is passed that is not overt racism, meaning they don't use the N-word, they don't say that we are trying to bring genocide against this group, 
they don't say that their racism is intentional, but actually the effect of their policy is racist. And so, you know, what's interesting about the film, thinking about it 20 years later, is that, you know, now it's actually even harder to sue on that whole concept of disparate impact. And in many ways, you know, it, it does speak to the actual retaliation against the movement um, and the counterinsurgency that, you know, even the federal government, which back then was, you know, they in the film, they're saying that the federal federal judges don't actually trust LAPD, right? Um, which is so contra, con, which is so different from the federal government today, where you know to even bring up the the term racism is almost unacceptable in the courts today, unless if they're calling you outright a name. Um, and even then, you know we've seen a whole you know movement around the country where you know you have outright racism and it's been brought to court. It's been either thrown out or it's sided with the racists in many ways. Um, and I, I don't know what to think about that, but what, what do you think? Well, it was <laughs> it was one of those things where you go, what? When the Stelio court deemed that for 30 years we had been misinterpreting what Title VI actually said and did not say. And from that and Yes, the BRU's case was one of those cited that was saying that the federal government, that the attorney general was the only one that had the right to sue based on Title VI or misappropriation of, um, of Title VI, that a class action suit, one like the BRU had, can no longer exist. And this was from a case that happened in uh, New Orleans, whereas this woman was, was trying to sue the government, saying that the driver's license test was not in Spanish, and that for, therefore how could they expect her to be able to pass the test when it was in English only? And right. that was shot down. Right, right, right. And, you know, it's so... So that's that's a whole other conversation, I feel like. And um, again, this is Channing Martinez, producer and host, uh, uh, co-host of Voices from the Front Lines. You're listening to KPFK ninety point seven FM in Los Angeles and ninety eight point seven FM in Santa Barbara. And I'm joined in studio by Barbara Lot Holland, longtime member of the Bus Riders Union and associate director of the Labor Community Strategy Center. Um, I think what we're going to do is we're going to actually take a music break. Um, and I do want to talk a little bit about the opening night film of the Pan-African Film Festival, mm. cause, just because I've studied it and I'm excited about it. Um, but first, during this break, we'll hear a poem from Nikki Giovanni about Aretha Franklin. Because nobody deals with Aretha, a mother with four children, having to hit the road. They always say after she comes home, 
But nobody ever says what it's like to get on a plane for a three-week tour. The elation of the first couple of audiences. The good feeling of exchange. The running on the high you get from singing good and loud and long, telling the world what's on your mind. Then comes the eighth show on the sixth day. The beginning to smell like that plane or bus. The if you forget your toothbrush in one spot, you can't brush until the second show. The strangers pulling at you because they love you. But you having no love to give back. The singing the same songs night after night, day after day. And if you read the gossip columns, the rumors that your husband is only after your fame. The wondering if your children will be glad to see you. And maybe the not caring if they are. The scheming to get out of just one show and go just one place where some dodo doopity doop won't say, just sing one song, please. Nobody mentions how it feels to become a freak because you have talent and how no one gives a damn how you feel, but only cares that Aretha Franklin is here. Like maybe that'll stop chickens from frying, eggs from being laid, or crackers from hating. And if you say you're lonely or scared or tired, how they always just say, oh, come off it. Or, did you see how they loved you? Did you see, huh? Did you? Which most likely has nothing to do with you anyway. And I'm not saying Aretha shouldn't have talent. And I'm certainly not saying she should quit singing. But as much as I love her, I'd vote yes to her doing four concerts a year and staying home or doing whatever she wants and making records. Because it's a shame the way we're killing her. We eat up artists like there's going to be a famine at the end of those three minutes. When there are, in fact, an abundance of talents just waiting. Let's put some of the giants away for a while and deal with them like they have a life to lead. That was the first half of Nikki Giovanni's uh, poem on Aretha Franklin. I just want to sum up this last portion, um, and then we'll talk a little bit about the opening night film of the Pan-African Film Festival, and then we'll definitely go to calls at 345. Um, you can start queuing up. I know there's already three people queued up, excited to talk about the Bus Riders Union film. Um, call 818-985-5735. Um, just one thing is that we're looking for callers who are actually organizers, who have you know a very constructive comment or something to say about the Bus Riders Union film, and then tell us, you know, if you're excited about the Pan-African Film Festival, we want to hear from you. Um, so just to sum up, we've been talking about the Bus Riders Union film. And again, the Strategy Center is actually sponsoring the Bus Riders Union film at this year's Pan-African Film Festival, happening at the Baldwin Hills Cinemark um, and Baldwin Hills Mall. Um, Baldwin Hills Crunch, I think, is the actual term that they're using. And we've been talking about organizing through film, and we've both been reflecting on just our organizing process and how far, you know, the Bus Riders Unit has come and the Strategy Center has come. Um, and just to finish it off that, you know, the Bus Riders Union is a great film. There's so much that you can learn from this film. I, I regularly study it you know, almost as much as people study the Bible in many ways. Um, I'm studying and I'm looking at all the different moves that are being made. And the film truly does take you on a journey in the day of a life of an organizer in Los Angeles and what that actually entails. And it tells, you know, in the great, in the great um, tradition of debating, it tells both sides, but then it picks a side. 
Um, a lot of people, you know, like to talk about documentaries are actually supposed to be objective. But actually, one thing that I do know that Eric says and I learn from Eric a lot is that, you know, actually, history, it, it, we're in the, actually in the battle of historical interpretation. And in many ways, the bus writers union follows that tradition in, in that, you know, it picks a side and it's telling the side of the victor. Um, which is the side of working class folks and the actual movement against anti-racist, anti-imperialist movement that the bus rights union was. Um, so let's transition to our next part. Um, for those of you guys who have not visited the Pan-African Film Festival website yet, um, one great thing that we realized and that we jumped on immediately is that the opening night film is going to actually be Amazing Grace, um, the film that was made in 1972 about Aretha Franklin. And in fact, there is an album by that same uh, name. It's one of her most popular albums, one of her most famous albums. Um, and for reasons I don't actually understand, I don't fully understand, I've read a lot about it, but you know, this year, in fact, last year actually was the first time the film was ever released in a public setting. Um, and this year, and, you know, it's going to be in a really much larger public setting, um, which is going to be the opening night of the Pan-African Film Festival. Um, I'm told that there were, you know, conflicts over the actual distribution of the film um, and other different conflicts, but for some reason... Years later, it is actually being produced. Um, Barbara, why don't you uh, – <laughs> are, are there any introductory thoughts you have about Aretha Franklin in general um, or about what we know about this film? Other than the fact that what everybody knows, she was definitely still is the queen of soul. <laughs> Dear beloved Aretha, uh, I'm sure that a lot of people out there know a lot about Aretha, but one of the things that really uh, struck me about her that I did not really, was not really aware of was her activism and uh, how she went a long way to actually support and was a part and, and a part of the advocacy for civil rights. I learned that she provided um, many funds for civil rights group and at times even covered some of the payroll of these groups. Uh, she spoke to uh, in Jet Magazine and spoke out about why it was that she supported Angela Davis. And when Angela was jailed in 1970, she made it her business to free her. She uh, she stated, and I quote, I've been locked up for disturbing the peace, and this was in Detroit, and I know you got to disturb the peace when you can't when get no peace, which is uh, a beautiful sim uh, sentiment. And she also mentioned that, you know, her people were the ones that helped her and supported her in her singing career, and she wanted to give back that same support to her people. She was also an advocate and supporter of um, Native American rights, which is one of the, the things that uh, probably is not known 
worldwide, well, I'm sure probably, which I've learned even in my travel, people in other countries know more about what's going on in our government here than Mm -hmm. a lot of us living here. And so that was just very interesting to me, and I just wanted to to, to give a shout-out to the support that she did give to the Civil Rights Movement. Um, so in in that light, I do want to talk about the poem by Nikki Giovanni. I was very strategic in playing that first. Um, you know, at first I was a little bit hesitant um, because it is, you know, laying, if you full, hear the full poem, it is trying to lay down a political, a set of politics. Um, and in many ways, what they're talking about is, you know, some of the craziness, the contradictions in the in the actual music industry. Um, and one of those is that, you know, artists go on tour and they're expected to perform so many shows, the same show over and over and over and over again. And everyone loves them. Everyone wants to hear the music and wants to hear their greatness because Aretha Franklin is great um, and they want to see her in person because she's great in person. Um, but the thing that it ends, that I ended with is just I wanted to, people to hear that, you know, when she says, I would elect to Aretha Franklin only doing four shows a year <laughs> and putting away the big stars and bring out the so many people who don't get selected in the music industry with talent. Um, you know, there's a, there's a whole set of politics there, um, one thing I don't know is, you know, um, and I do know this is a touchy subject, I don't know, you know, what were the conditions of her passing this past year, right? Um, I do know that in many, you know, there's there's many reasons why a lot of black artists pass. Some of it, it does have to do with drugs, but then some of it does have to do with just overworking and your body is not built to just boom, boom, keep going, 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 going um, like a machine. And, you know, and I do know that there's a whole history of black artists being, in many ways, they're being exploited. You know, that I think this is a very interesting conversation to bring up now, especially in the light of the NFL, where, you know, there's a lot of heat on the NFL by many black people saying that, why is the NFL structured in some ways, like a plant, like a southern plantation, where the owner has the final say, so um, there's still whole movement around Colin Kaepernick um, for kneeling down for justice, and how you know the NFL can just put it to the end and act like it never happened, right? Um, and so, you know, there's some interesting, and so all of that to say, and all of that to reflect on that when it came time to speak about Amazing Grace and time to speak about Aretha Franklin, you know, I myself felt really bad and reflective that, you know, I know I can name so many of her songs, but I don't know anything about Aretha Franklin. Like, I literally had to go on the computer and research actually who is who is she as a person and what did she stand for? Like, I didn't know anything about her civil rights history. I didn't know where she was born. I didn't know anything about her family. Um, One thing we were reading about is that in some ways, you know, while Aretha was actually born um, in Detroit, in Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee, Tennessee, actually, and grew up in Detroit. um, She actually grew up in Detroit. and, And for folks that actually know that history, you know, that's speaking a little bit about 
the Great Migration and how a lot of black families were traveling north for work. Um, one of the members, Shep, talks about that all the time. So yeah, so this is going to be, you know, this is one of the first times this film is going to be released publicly um, to actually be seen by the public. It's going to be the opening night. Um, you can find out more information about this and all of the films of the, of the Pan-African Film Festival at paff.org. Um, I do want to move on to some callers, um, but do you have any summation thoughts, Barbara, about Well, <laughs> the more I read about her, and like you, I mean, I probably know every song she sung. I even have uh, some of her um live performances on on video that um that I watch as a matter of fact just just speaking of that I remember uh years ago I received a copy of um of Aretha's uh, performances when she was with the uh, Atlantic Records and that was a gift that I received uh from a donation that I had given <laughs> To the uh, to the bus riders union doing, during to, from the bus riders union doing one of their fun drives. So she has uh, been a part of my life for so long, and yet actually I appreciate the fact that she kept her private life private, and mm. it took a lot of effort on her part to do that. And actually, I learned that she did, I think it was in 1974, 84, that she um, announced that she did have a fear of flying and limited her uh, engagements to those in North America and had her own bus that was especially designed for her so that she could travel and uh, travel without having to fly. So she was a, a beautiful woman. And uh, she will always be remembered. Definitely. And I'm definitely going to see the film. Barbara's definitely going to oh, go yes, see the film. Oh, yes, I already have my ticket. <laughs> always. So, I didn't want to, to, to try and get one, and they tell me they were all sold out. I mean, so. Oh, no, that can't be caught like that. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's hear from the first caller, um, Nancy. Hi. Hi, Hi, Nancy Lawrence. How are you doing? Hey, Nancy. Hi, Nancy. Oh, yeah, I was. I have a small part in the movie, uh, the Hector Wickler Bus Riders Union movie, and I remember standing there uh, when we won the consent degree in front of the courthouse, and I was really kind of sick that day, but I dragged myself out there because it's such an important moment. But we all knew, I think, that the struggle continued from there. So, like what's going on now, for instance, they want to have a fee on dri- uh, while driving. You know, I, I'm sure you've been hearing about that. Right. And, I mean, it just shows you all the false solutions they're throwing at, at us. And, and that fee is to probably build more trains, you know. So, anyhow, it, it, you know, and then we're also planning to invade Venezuela, so that's scary. So it's all these struggles that we, we have to worry about. And um, it's, 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 we all learn from each other, and it's just, um, I've, I've been so proud to be part of the Strategy Center, and um, I will continue to be so. And I'll see you uh, uh, at the uh, Bus Riders Union um, uh, when we have uh, a movie. All right. That's great. Thanks yeah. for calling in, Nancy. Sure. sure. Nancy, for, for some of you guys who don't know, Nancy is a longtime member of the Bus Riders Union. As she said, she was actually in the film. Um, and she is step, she's actually standing on the steps when bon- Della Bonner is saying, wait a minute, this is just a down payment. Um, 
And even me myself, you know, I've been in many ways for, you know, maybe two or three years, I've been the main organizer contacting Nancy, actually. I've been very honored. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, inter- not internet Saturday. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but what's, you know, what's been amazing is that I've actually even learned a lot from Nancy um, myself. And Nancy is always, you know, she's, uh, you know, she's, in the very tradition of an organizer, she's looking at the news and she's wanting to know what's going on in the world and what are the movements pushing against the oppression in the world. And I think that's really great. So we will see you definitely at the film showing, Nancy. Oh, I'm looking forward to a great discussion, too. Thanks for calling. Let's go to Doc from downtown Los Angeles. Oh, how do you do? Hi. Hey, how are you? Doing okay, and I've been enjoying the program and I'm looking forward to seeing the picture. Although, as someone who's been a member of the Bachelors Union for many years, I will say I'm kind of baffled by something. Okay. Well, now maybe it's me, I don't know, but as far as I can tell, there's been virtually no activity by the union for about the last 10 years, and I've been wondering what's, just what's going on. Well, thanks for calling. Barbara was speaking about that a little bit earlier, um, and what's going on is that the Bus Riders Union has merged into what is called the Fight for the Soul of the Cities. I'm sorry, and Fight for the... Fight, fight for the Soul of the Cities. And it's part of the No Cars in L.A. campaign, so we're very much still here. Okay, well, there's and, certainly a number of issues need to be addressed. I can just mention one. I live near uh, in downtown L.A. near the convention center, and over the last three years, within I swear, within, I'm not exaggerating at all, within a couple of miles from me, there's something like eight stops that just totally disappeared. And, and I talked, you know, I went on to talk to the administration, and they give me this baloney stuff, the world we've been attempting to streamline, blah, 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 you know, just BS stuff, which can be extremely frustrating. Well, thanks for calling. Um, we're going to move on to the next caller, but let me respond really quick. Um, you know, that's a very real concern. Um, and one of the things that we're talking about that we will definitely be talking about at the panel after the bus riders union is that in many ways what you're seeing going on with the public transportation system today is actually a counterinsurgency and, you know, a, it's a, a – not a reaction. A, a It's a – you know, it's a playback against the movement. And so – what we've been talking about for the last 10 years, since you mentioned it, is that Metro has actually been cutting more than a million hours of service, service that was won during the consent decree. Um, and while we've been going to the Metro, we have not been yet figured out, you know, in the time, place, and conditions, in the time, place, and conditions where, you know, the courts have made it even harder to sue, sue government agencies, right, um, and the system has rebelled, how do we then gain that leverage to actually stand up against big, you know, um, big corporations like the Metro? And in many ways, we're trying to right now not so much focus directly on the Metro, but how do we then build up, you know, our own folks? Because our own folks are beaten up right now. Do you have anything to right. add to that? Exactly. And in the campaign, uh, No Cars in L.A., which is – uh, definitely a part of the Bus Riders Union and one of those demands along with free public transportation because, yes, MTA can afford it, and to getting law enforcement off of public transportation as well as out of our schools. We see that across the nation when 
there is an incident. It is all the pushback is always on black people in particularly and people of color around the nation. So we're saying if you when we're looking at the public's anything public, they are uh, trying to push out black people and then people of color. And then we are saying to end the attack on black people on public transportation, to get to end police uh, in the, the fascist police state that we're actually living in, that the, the cost of putting police on our public transportation could overwhelmingly pay for free public transportation so that the poor can navigate their lives on public transportation and not go to continuously using fossil fuel, which is why part of one of our demands is the 5,000 new zero emission buses. Great, great. We uh, So I do want to thank Doc for calling. That is... Um very wonderful comment and does highlight the problem that's going on today. Um, let's go to our last caller, uh, Lynette from Los Angeles. Hello. Hey, Lynette. How Hi, are you? Hi, Lynette. Hello, and, and thank you guys for having this show. I mean, you guys put us on point. Amen and praise the Lord to everything you guys just laid out there just a minute ago. All right. Um, that's great. I mean, I'm just like, well, you know, we've been saying this for years, Channing. Hey, we need free uh, transportation, you know, here. We should get it. But in the meantime, we're going to have to really fight to put uh, more seats on that uh, county board of supervisors to split up, you know, from five to maybe ten. And then uh, make the city council stop spending half of the city budget on police in the first place. How about that? I I mean, I the bus the other day. And uh, you still saw police on these transit lines, you know, like they're looking for somebody. It makes you kind of feel like, wow, so you know, they want something to happen so, you know, they can, you know, because they've already admitted that they have had, like, uh, with Connie Rice admitting that it's been more or less like, you know, racial profiling going on with real, uh, driving while black is on the rise, you know, just mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys had heard about it. But that had came out, you know, this is this is stop and frisk, you know, uh, with mm-hmm. the police, with with people of color, black Latinos here in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, the mayor saying, oh, the crime rate has been down, but what, in comparison to the 80s or something? I mean, right. come on now. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so I'm just like, I'm waiting for some free transportation. I've been a bus, I have been a bus riders union member back in the 90s when y'all first started on it. It was only $10 back then. That's how long ago that was. But I'm, I'm just like, hey, you know, they can't be shooting us behind some bus fare and taking us to jail because we don't have our bus fare, you know. Yeah. That's crazy, especially in times like this, you know, being that uh, the tax cuts for the, the 1% are on the rise and the Poor People's Campaign is still fighting. PoorPeople'sCampaign.com.org, uh, <laughs> they're fighting for the guaranteed universal basic income, just like back then. Great. Well, Dr. King was talking about we need it real bad right now because we might be hitting a recession. Hopefully. Well, thanks thanks for calling, Lynette. Um, let me just respond. Oh, do you want to respond really quick? Well, uh, I my first response is, Lisette, come on back home. We're... Come join us. We're on the corner of King and Crenshaw, open four days a week. And hopefully we will see you at the Bus Riders Union Film on February 12th, 6 p.m. 
Um, so we have one last minute. Um, also, just a response. You know, Lynette, I definitely appreciate what you're saying, which is that, you know, it's not just the bus system. It's an entire system of tax, right? And wherever you go that's by the government, you see that the government's actually repressing, repressing our people. And so rightfully so, and Lynette highlights that, you know, half the city budget is going to police. And you're, we're fighting an uphill battle that, you know, it's not just about my bus line, my bus stop, my individual thing, right? How do we get folks, especially, you know, our, our own folks, but especially, you know, the white west side to then fight for working class people in many ways? Um, so with that, thank you, Nina. We love this song. I'm the one that actually <laughs> chose this song for the end of the show. Um, we're going to be back next week in studio with Eric and hopefully Babu from the Pan-African Film Festival. Um, this has been Voices from the Front Lines. We hope to hear from you. Please write me at channing at thestrategycenter.org. I would love to hear your comments. Um, and with that, all power to the people. All power to the people. Every highway, 